Welcome to the Clinician Researcher Podcast, where academic clinicians learn the skills to build their own research program, whether or not they have a mentor. As clinicians, we spend a decade or more as trainees learning to take care of patients. When we finally start our careers, we want to build research programs, but then we find that our years of clinical training did not adequately prepare us to lead a research program. Through no fault of our own, we struggle to find mentors, and when we can't, we quit. However, clinicians hold the keys to the greatest research breakthroughs. For this reason, the Clinician Researcher podcast exists to give academic clinicians the tools to build their own research program, whether or not they have a mentor. Now, introducing your host, Teosi Onwemina. Welcome to the Clinician Researcher Podcast. I'm your host, Chelsea Wemina, and it is such a privilege to be here. I am super excited about today's episode because I have a, re- a really extra special guest. It's Dr. Iman Metwali. And Iman, I want to thank you. Welcome to the show. Hi, Teosia. Uh, actually, I, I want to thank you too. Thank you so much for the invitation. And I'm really excited. Thank you for being here. So Iman, the audience is excited to get to know you. I want you to introduce yourself to the audience, especially from the perspective of yourself as a clinician and a researcher. Yeah. So currently I am a second year postdoctoral fellow in the epidemiology department of the School of Public Health at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Uh, I used actually to be a pulmonary and critical care physician. I practiced like for nine years uh, in Egypt as a pulmonary and critical care. So during my residency and then my PhD program after I finished my residency and then maybe one year after I practiced pulmonary medicine. Then when I immigrated here to the U.S., I studied biomedical and health informatics. And then I joined UNC as a research fellow. And this is my current position nowadays. Wow, Iman, thank you for sharing. So you have a unique story where you actually finished your clinical training and you practice as a clinician, and then you made the transition to research. So I would love for you to share with our audience, what was the, what were the big ahas for you where, you know, you had already been the expert clinically and now you are being, you know, kind of starting training as a researcher. How, what were the big surprises for you? Well, thank you. This is a great question. And I really love this question. When did it start? When the spark started? So training started at the bedside. So I was a resident, maybe towards the end of my first year as a pulmonary and critical care resident. And the system there in Egypt is a little bit different. Let me back up. (laughs) So in Egypt, we do six years for medical school and then one year as an internship. And then we apply for our residency. And the residency does not start with internal medicine. It just starts with the speciality. So I went straight from the internship to uh, pulmonary and critical care uh, speciality. And as I said, I was interacting with patients with lung cancer and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. And treaties like got my attention into how the patients, for example, with lung cancer would be staged based on like radiology, CT, and other investigations into stage one. And maybe after following up this patient, you would find different trajectory for them. Like some patient with stage one would do very well on some patient with stage one 
uh, would do very unwell. And some would have, and the same for survival. It's not only like their quality of life, but also for survival. So this heterogeneity in the patient outcome, uh, despite they have the same classification that we classified them initially uh, on clinical side, made me think about the heterogeneity of disease and the link between how we classify and diagnose patients and put them into boxes based on our classification, like lung cancer based on the stage and the histology, uh, COPD based on the pulmonary function severity, and how this box that we put the patient in deserve in their outcome when we follow up them during their clinical course and during our clinical care for them. So I started in, during residency in Egypt, we have to prepare like a master degree. So I prepared, my proposal was about to the, like description of the clinical profile, histology, radiology for patients with lung cancer that is attending our university hospital. So the, the hospital that I worked in was a tertiary level hospital that served a big area uh, in, in Egypt. Uh, it's not only in Alexandria city, but also in the area, like the small towns around Alexandria uh, city. So um, I had maybe around more than 300 patients for my study, uh, 112 of them had lung cancer and the rest were controls, patients who did not have lung cancer. And I started to look up into these patients at all levels from the, how they are diagnosed initially and how they are, their diagnosis was confirmed. And later on, their trajectory towards treatment, who got surgical treatment and who got like chemotherapy or radiotherapy. And I got fascinated by, as I, as I said, how much different their course would end up despite they have been classified initially into the same category based on clinical side. Then after finishing my master's degree, I, 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 in the same year, it was around 2011 maybe, I attached it to the PhD program. And my initial proposal was actually to continue into understanding more about heterogeneity of lung cancer. Mm. I was looking into doing some, you know, molecular signature type of study to understand how the genotyping of these patients might explain the heterogeneity in their clinical outcome later on. But the uh, techniques that is necessary for doing the genotyping and the molecular data analysis was not feasible to me at the institution I worked in. So um, I had to switch gears. So, but I, I'm glad because I said, okay, so maybe lung cancer was very complex and, you know, the, the neoplasm stuff and the progression of the disease is very aggressive. So maybe that's why there was heterogeneous outcome in the patient. Let's switch to another maybe chronic, more benign disease. And that's what COVID is. And then after, just not, says not to make it like a long story, after I studied the clinical profile again, radiology and yeah, at that time during my PhD, I had to do something more complicated. So I also did endoscopic visualization of their airways. I found that the heterogeneity is so severe. The more you go into detail, the more you examine the patient, not only clinically and maybe physiologically and based on the lab, but the more you go inside the patient by the endoscope, for example, in my case, and looking into how their endobronchial erythema is visualized and process their samples from the bronchial wall, the more you discover the shortage of how we classify them based on the clinical side. So I got fascinated by that we should improve classification of our 
diseases. And these are common diseases, COPD and lung cancer. They are very common everywhere in the world, not only in, you know, developed or, or developing countries. So that was like the thing that's pushing me that we have some, I like, I might have something that I can contribute to improve how the patients, you know, can be classified. And because, you know, that our classification determine our management of the disease. So if we classify them more precisely, we will be able to treat them more precisely. And accordingly, we will improve their outcome at the end. So yeah, <laughs> that's wow. a lot. No, thank you for sharing. One of the things I have to say is, first of all, I love the passion with which you speak about the work. I mean, it's just so awesome. And another thing I see is that, so you're talking about lung cancer classification or, or COPD classification or classification of lung diseases. And these are diseases that have been classified, but as a clinician, you could see that there, there's a gap. And so the classification doesn't always help you tell how they're going to do. And so you're seeing opportunity for a new or a more refined classification. And so we already have solutions, but you're looking for finer, more specific solutions so that we can classify patients according to how they actually do, because it's going to affect outcomes. I love the excitement that you talk with, about with, with which you talk about it. It's so awesome. I want you to speak to what are the advantages you've had as a clinician who's, you know, gone into kind of like a very solitary research focus and what are the disadvantages of being a clinician in this space? Yeah, thank you for asking this question. So I feel that one of the biggest advantage I had uh, as a clinician is that I was at the bedside of the patient. I like I felt the patient, how the patient is confused at the beginning. They're suffering to know their, you know, their diagnosis. Are they like and their prognosis? How much are they going? How much time I have, doctors, especially when it is a new blast. Getting in touch with their caregivers knowing about, you know, the burden of caring for a patient with lung cancer or whatever. And at that time, during my residency, I was around 2008, and there was, in the institution I worked in, there was no much, I say, if I would say, like targeted treatment or maybe advanced treatment for lung cancer. So even if the patient was diagnosed at an early stage, it was like kind of maybe an early notice of death for their caregivers. And some would like even hide the diagnosis from their patients. So feeling all of that, I think, was and still like the, the force that is moving me and pushing me forward to like what I am doing, the research I'm doing now will make a difference, not only in the life of the patient, but also in the life of the people who are surrounding the patient, who are taking care of the patient. So this was one of the biggest advantage. I feel that I... Uh, had and that is living with me uh, now, even after I left the clinical practice side. Another point is that the mentorship, I really was, was like, it was my pleasure actually to work under a supervision of great mentors who, despite many of the, like maybe, like there was in, I was working in a university hospital, tertiary level hospital, but not all the techniques that we need to conduct the research was there. And actually one of my like mentorship team, like connected me with some of the mentors or some of his colleagues and friends in Europe. And we started to talk about maybe some of the stuff that we can do together, but again, some of the regulation, especially 
regarding like transferring some of the samples to be processed overseas over the like overseas was like kind of not allowed <laughs> maybe from this point and it stopped the the research from going further but at least just having access to other like uh, experts in this field through my mentors was a great advantage and it was like there is no limit you, you can reach there or maybe after you finish your PhD here maybe you can travel overseas to continue your line of research so I was fortunate to have these uh, mentors uh, as role models and as like someone who always encourages someone who listen despite all you know I was I was doing my PhD in pulmonary medicine at the same time I was practicing and just having someone who supervise you who is flexible who is understanding was a big thing to me and then some of the disadvantage is that not everything was bright and good like as I had some good mentors I also had some other voices who would tell me because who tell me like why you are aiming too big <laughs> in your research why you are like like part of my PhD actually research was done in collaboration with Harvard University so I was in Egypt in doing my my research and I was sending them some of the image radiological images over the email uh, and they were developing a, a new software for quantitative image analysis and their software was not yet on you know uh, ready to be used but they really helped me and we were like experimenting together uh, how can we use my and uh, my relatively primitive ct images to get into how the COD can be classified uh, in a quantitative uh, manner so while i was doing that i heard other voices actually from around me academic in in the institution i worked in why are you going too far? Why are you doing this? Maybe this will be your last maybe research you are doing in this area. So just finish, you know, finish and do do a good job, but you don't have to be very sophisticated to this extent. But I didn't listen to that. Like I know that if I wanna to do something, I wanna like I don't know what will come next. I don't I didn't know that I'm going to immigrate to the US. <laughs> I didn't know anything about that. But I was fascinated when I go. When I finish my like care for my patient and at um, when I at the end of the day at night I would go into my laptop and I would read other uh, people research in this area and I would say there are a lot to do there are a lot and rules there are a lot that I can collaborate on I can bring to the you know to the table and that's really what fascinated me about research is that no matter your background is no matter your country of origin is no matter your how you look is it doesn't matter as long as you are going to have a good idea and you will have the good people to collaborate with it will work so yeah so that's how i i try to use my advantage to overcome my disadvantage and uh, yeah i think that i did something good yeah. yeah, thank you so much. That was that was really, really insightful. I, I hear you talk about just the relationships with mentors that really helped you move forward and allowed you to find the expertise you needed to move your research forward. But then also people who were naysayers who say, well, you're you're moving too fast, you're trying to do too much, you're being too sophisticated, slow down or pull back. And really you had a sense that this was so important 
And that's why even though people told you don't do it, you still moved forward, which is so awesome. And I just want to encourage our listeners, because this is something that comes up all the time, where people will hold you back, or people will say you're trying too hard, or, you know, slow down or try a different perspective. I think what I'm hearing, and you didn't say it explicitly, Iman, was just that your heart and your gut, like your sense of the importance of your work really does matter. And even when you don't find support, it's important to continue to push forward. Yes, exactly. Thank you for like you phrasing it in a, maybe a much better way than mine. Um, it is this, yeah, it is this. The message is that when you believe in the cause, um, even when you believe that the cause is bigger than me, it is not me that I wanted to do it. It's just that I wanted to be part in order to push this, you know, push this cause to a better place, like push our patient care to a better place. Mm. And I see some light. There are some light here and not a lot of people are paying attention to this area. So let's highlight it. And mm. I don't know how I'm going to highlight it, but I will keep pushing and see how it goes from there. So yeah. Absolutely. And that's where great breakthroughs come. So one thing you talked about that I really want us to talk about is collaboration. So now you're a full-time researcher, sometimes looking to collaborate with clinicians. Yeah. Tell me about how clinician scientists should think about their collaborations and especially with regard to the clinician perspective. Yeah. So while I, let me, let me talk about when I started as a clinician who collaborated during my residency and my PhD study, like I did research in lung cancer and in COPD. And at that time I was collaborating with, with other people who maybe are not practicing with patients like pathology professors and those from the community medicine or public health school in Egypt. So really as a clinician, I had the idea that I wanted to look into this question, but I didn't know that, that I should go, maybe might, I might, I, I should might have gone, have gone earlier in my research question phase to maybe an uh, epidemiology, you know, expert, just to see how I should design my study, how many patients are required, you know, sample size calculation, all of these details. So being a clinician who wanted to do something like at population level, I, I should have gone earlier to someone who's expert just to give me guidelines about how many should I enroll? What are the settings of enrollment? These are important. So collaborating and engaging and talking about your research question while you are a clinician with a large, larger group of people, people who are outside your department, people who are not practicing medicine. Even what I learned later on is that just talk it with the day people, people in your family. See how they see the research question and its impact on whatever their friends or whoever had the disease and they know of. So listening to many perspectives would add a lot of depth to your research question. So this is a thing. When I came here to, and, and be patient. <laughs> so as a clinician, we have also like narrow time maybe to spend in research. And we had in our mind, like some things are common sense. Like the, the collaborator in front of me should have, you know, understand it from my first time I have said it, but um, the actual or the reality is not that. Like what is common sense to you from your perspective is not necessarily the same from the other person's perspective. So maybe talking about your research in different ways, visualize your research question, visualize why it is needed 
in different ways and multiple ways. And now it is very easy because we have a lot of visualization tools and we have a lot of evidence that is available, you know, online from previous research. All of these, like, advertise for your research question. And if you don't know how to talk about it eloquently, talk with the people from your, you know, field who can talk about it. And, you know, steal their words, <laughs> if, if this is like after, under their permission. The, the whole idea is try to highlight the need for your research question as much possible as you can. Use all the resources around you and uh, be patient. So this is, I think, when I was a clinician. And now when I moved to the U.S. and I am included, like I'm enrolled only in research sites, what I see, like what I would love for my for my clinical collaborators to do is that maybe attend more often the research group meetings, like listen to how they receive your research question, how they, there are many decisions that are needed to be taken regarding the study design, regarding the number of patients needed, regarding the study settings that will not be solved unless they had this clinical understanding of how the magnitude of the problem at the clinical side. So really talking with the people back and forth and being patient sometimes like the person who abstracts data from electronic health record or, you know, manipulate the data to create the variables we need. They need a lot of back and forth just to create the correct variable to make sure that after the data analysis is done, that you are that the data analysis is answering your question, not answering another question. <laughs> and be patient because sometimes after all of that work, there might be a small error in the coding <laughs> that you have to maybe repeat. The data analyst has to repeat the data analysis again in order to answer your research question. So, and this is another point that I learned really during doing my research, and I am learning now in the at UNC is that always question your results. So just don't be very happy about breakthrough or very large association you found. Always question the validity of your results mm. and try to do, as you know, sensitivity analysis as much as you can in order to make sure that what I am exporting to the scientific world is correct mm -hmm. to the best of my not. So this kind of checking, check, uh, checking my results and and making sure that what I am saying is credible, I think is very beneficial for myself first as as a researcher, you know, early stage uh, researcher trying to build uh, a name for myself in the research world and also for the research, scientific research environment in general. We wanted to have like good data. We want to have to build the trust in the research community. So... Again, it needs patience, a lot of involvement, talking a lot to each other uh, at the collaboration table. So yeah, that's that's really awesome. Thank you, Iman. So what I hear you saying is that so clinicians have a lot of knowledge that they don't remember that nobody else has. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And the importance of not being not being afraid to over communicate, like continue to just because you shared something once doesn't mean you can't share it again, or doesn't mean that they got it the first time. And so taking responsibility for communicating and also checking that the communication was delivered or understood. 
correctly. Yeah, understood yes. correctly because yes. they might seem that they got it, but they do not get your point, your fine mm, point. Sure, sure. Yeah. And then I'm also hearing that it's important for the clinician to stay involved and to help question the the data when it comes out, where it's like, okay, why does this say this? Does this make sense? Even if it's an exciting finding to actually be willing to question the data so that you can make sure that what you have is high quality before you release it to the scientific community. Yes, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. I, I love that. I love your comment about staying involved because clinicians can be very busy And so I want you to just, uh, uh, actually, you gave great recommendations. You said attend the meetings (laughs) yeah, (laughs) so so that they can help answer questions at that point, which is awesome. I'm wondering if there are any other practical steps that clinicians can can use to stay involved in the research. I think also having basic information about how the data is generated. Mm. Like how the data that's like, for example, I'm, I'm not sure like, for me, myself, I'll talk about my journey. When I first started just looking at the research, I started here as a fellow, I started like just looking at the data output. Like this is how, for example, small, uh, like lung cancer is coded based on the histology. This is how the patient sociodemographic is created. But I did not know what happened behind the scenes. How, why socio, socio for example, why race, the race is classified this way? Why the socioeconomic status was classified this way? What was behind the score that I used in my classification? And what are the implications of using, of of, um, describing the socioeconomic status using this score versus another score? Hmm. I was not getting into details of that. Hmm. And I was just trying to understand the table, you know, the Excel sheet in front of me. And maybe uh, talk with the analyst to why not to look into the association between that and that until I started to learn about how the data was or was uh, generated first place and the difference between using this score versus that score and how this affects the um, outcome of the analysis at the end. So just I'm not uh, maybe not all the clinicians will have the chance to do uh, a master program in clinical research. But just having a basic or maybe listening how the data uh, was created, was generated, is very helpful for them because it will affect, again, how their research question can be answered. The second thing is also to have maybe maybe basic also knowledge about the available data analysis tools that are there. Like, for example, I want to make sure that this research question can be asked using electronic health record because it is really different than using maybe another data set like claims data. So taking some time to understand which data set, which data source would be best for my research question is very important because I, that I, I learned that the hard way. <laughs> like I formulated research questions for a grant proposal and I submitted my grant and I proposed to use actually both data, electronic health record and claims data. And at the end, when I received the, the feedback, of course it, was not, it wasn't accepted, but the feedback was one of them. It, this is a little bit theoretical because this kind, maybe the first question cannot be answered using this type of data set. So 
And again, this kind of information will not be known until you talk with the people. It will not be known using the PubMed and searching for similar study that try to answer your research question because that's what I did. But just like talking with the people who used both uh, different types of data sets will help a lot to choose and to save you time and effort and and, and you know, emotions after that. <laughs> when grant got accepted or whatever or rejected. So yeah, it's again talking with the people. I appreciate your, your comments and thank you for that. So what I'm hearing is that don't try to do it by yourself. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Connect with the people who know and ask questions and don't don't just accept things at face value. I, I, I appreciate you saying that. And I can see that it's born out of your experience. Like you've, you've done that before and then you've learned after the fact. And so what you're doing is giving people shortcuts, which is awesome. Yeah, 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 exactly. Exactly. This is the case. And also my first point was that try to learn how the data was generated. Yes. yes. This is yes. very important because when, when I, when, before I learned that I was just like, you know, there was something missing in my understanding mm. what happened. And sometimes I miss parts of the conversation because people or who are not clinician are very knowledgeable about the scores and, you know, the measurement and how they can operational, opera, they call operationalize, like um, how to get a concept and make it consumable during data analysis. This is called operationalization of a, of a, of a term or of a concept. So this operationalization um, kind of thing, you, I think the clinician need to understand it mm-hmm. because this is the transition between the idea in their head and how it can be analyzed uh, on the ground. I love that. You know what it makes me think about? It's like as clinicians, when we're getting data from patients, we're first of all getting stories and we're converting stories into data. When epidemiologists and biostatisticians are looking at the data, all they have is data without story. And so it's a different way of looking at it and they don't have the element of story to interpret things. And so as you say, when they're trying to operationalize race or socio-demographic information, or even diagnosis, they have to look at all these codes to come up with the the story. And so being able to see how that story is being created from the data helps you, the clinician, because you can say, oh, no, that story is not plausible. This is what makes more sense. And so I I like that idea. Just make sure you understand how that data is being generated. Don't just take it at face value. Yes, exactly. Thank you so much. I love the, the description of a story and you have to listen to for different sides of the story. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, thank you. That's awesome. Well, thank you. So, okay, we're coming up on the end of our podcast episode and I want you to just share any insights with people who are thinking, this is too hard. I can't do it. I'm just a clinician. I can't do research. What, what advice do you have for them and what things should they consider as they're moving forward in their decision? You are needed. I have to say to that to the clinician, you are really needed. No research can advance without the input from the people at the front line. And being a front line, uh, like heroes uh, as clinician, um, really you have the responsibility besides your, besides your responsibility taking care of the patient. If you really have the passion for the research, because, you know, Doing any work, doing any job can be tedious if you don't have the passion for it. So if you really have this 
have this question that you couldn't answer during your conversation with the patient, and you know that the answer for this question will come from researching it more, you have that passion. But maybe you are, you did not, maybe you can say, maybe you did not uh, dig deeper into it. So just talk. And, you know, the need for clinician in the research, you might not need to devote big time. Just conversation with someone with researcher, you don't know how much, like, for example, me, myself, I, I practiced for nine years and then I, I shifted into research. But sometimes I feel that because I did, I practice in different setting than the U.S. Just talking with clinical research with a clinician really, you can say that illuminate me into how I can better tweak my or refine my question in order to fit and benefit the patient at the bedside. So clinician can really contribute to the research that is going on at different level at different time you know, requirement and like, I, I would say just to start with a small time devoted and then how it goes, maybe you will get into it and you'd love to continue and contribute more, but don't make like the time and the business, like a big, like barrier for uh, contributing to the research, because I am sure that every clinician at some point, whatever experience they had, they had unanswered questions with their patients. And they are responsible. That's how I see it. We are responsible to answer this question somehow. And how this how can be, can vary from few, you know, minutes talking with a researcher to maybe a few hours every week and, and so on. So, yeah. That's really awesome. Iman, thank you so much. I love what you said. Just having passion is important and having unanswered questions. So for any clinician, who has unanswered questions, you're already able to contribute because your unanswered question is the source of much research that could lead to an answer to the question, which is, yeah. which is so awesome. I, I, and you started, you said clinicians are needed. We absolutely are. And, and I just want to invite as many people who are listening to just recognize that if you don't ask the question, nobody else may answer it, but you're asking the question can precipitate others answering that. You're asking the question may precipitate others answering that question. So definitely recognize that you are needed. Iman, you have been just such a wonderful, wonderful guest. I appreciate your time, your insights, and it's just been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much, Tayosi. The same here, really, I felt uh, so happy and so glad. And thank you. Thank you for your inciting questions. It was an honor. Thank you. Thank you, Iman. All right, everybody. You've heard Dr. Metwali. If you're a clinician, you're absolutely needed in this research enterprise and definitely connect with your collaborators and really be connected as the research questions are being answered. All right. I will. I am excited to see you on the next episode. Thanks for joining us today. And I'll talk to you again the next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Clinician Researcher Podcast, where academic clinicians learn the skills to build their own research program, whether or not they have a mentor. If you found the information in this episode to be helpful, don't keep it all to yourself. Someone else needs to hear it. So take a minute right now and share it. As you share this episode, you become part of our mission to help launch a new generation of clinician researchers who make transformative discoveries 
change the way we do health.